The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter Ella, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 52, Into the Trek Zone, featuring the return of science fiction writer William Leisner. Following our review of First Man in episode 50, we dived into a discussion of Bill's geeky roots and his books, including his Star Trek stories and novels and other writing projects he's working on. Ella is, of course, still busy at uni in London, but we'll Skype in for a geeky update following my chat with Bill. Remember, you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, including blog posts from me and handy links to all our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. Okay, we're back. We can kind of springboard off that uh, discussion of uh, space movies by getting into uh, fictional space. You are a science fiction writer, but I'm going to go back to the beginning. All the way to the beginning. Back to the beginning. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So, I'm always interested in hearing, when would you say, you know, in retrospect, with what you know, know now, looking back on your whole life, when would you say that you really, like... That's when I was a geek. How young would you really push back that definition? Around six, seven years old with the uh, with Star Trek, the animated series. All right. When it was uh, airing on NBC, and I remember being out with my parents and my brothers at some kind of. I think we were we were at a. Uh, at a flea market of some sort, or, mm-hmm. a gar- or a large garage sale. And I was concerned because we weren't going to get home in time to see <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> and when we got home, I rushed down the, down to the uh, basement's uh, TV room to turn on Star Trek. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, well, and that handles my next question, because then I always segue from... When did it really start to asking what was your gateway? And for you, it was, in fact, Star Trek. It was Star Trek. I don't remember if I had seen the live action series mm-hmm. before the cartoon series. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I remember that flea market. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that panic of <laughs> not getting home in time to see it. But, I, I you know, I have been watching the uh, Star Trek series, you know, from a very young age. Do you remember if you were digging into other sci-fi stuff at the time? Sci-fi shows or sci-fi books or sci-fi comic books? At that early of an age, I don't think so. I mean, I was reading Judy Bloom and <laughs> Beverly mm-hmm, Cleary. Mm-hmm. It's probably not until, you know, closer to 8, 9, 10 that I started mm-hmm. going to the library. Uh, I was lucky enough that I walked to school for most of my grade school years, oh, mm-hmm. and my walking route was right by the library. So nice. I was, you know, usually dropping into the library two times, two three times a week, going in, and I was looking for, you know, Isaac Asimov and anything going through the science fiction section and seeing what caught my eyes. And 
So let's step outside of Star Trek uh, for a moment, as difficult as that may be to do. What are some of the books and authors that you would call out from... You mentioned Asimov. Yeah, Asimov, I, the, the robot stories were mm -hmm. what really caught my interest at that point in time. You know, and then there was, there was also Star Wars at the same point in time, and, you know, I, I really did gravitate more towards the uh, media sci-fi, mm -hmm. the Star Wars, the Star Trek. I remember reading 2001 around the same time that I had seen the movie, mm -hmm. and, you know, for a for an idea of saying what what was actually going on <laughs> on the screen, and like, oh, okay, this makes sense now that <laughs> Arthur Clarke has spelled it out for me. When then did you start noodling around with writing your own stories? If if you tended more toward watching sci-fi than reading sci-fi, well, my, my my earliest writings were comic strips. I, me, really? Yes, my me and my uh, brother, who's one year younger, we would draw comic strips for each other, which would, you know, feature our stuffed animals and oh, you know, nice <laughs> anthropomorphized, yeah. and having little adventures and you know, interacting with us and other things, mm -hmm. and so yeah, so that was like when I was very young and into drawing, and I was try to do. Uh, you know, man magazine type of <laughs> did did pair try to do. I remember I did a uh, man magazine style of the uh, '60s Batman, <laughs> <laughs> which was just so open to to the kind of ridicule and <laughs> of of the man magazine style. And then you know, I didn't really get serious about writing until I went to college, Ithaca College. Uh, and they had their own campus television station. Mm -hmm. uh, and freshman year, they were just starting up a dramatic anthology series. Or, or an anthology series, not necessarily dramatic, but it was they were asking for short scripts of the Twilight Zone variety. I should have brought up Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was another huge influence in my, my youth. So when you started writing, you still were more focused on the visual medium. You started with comic strips. Then you started writing scripts. Yes, yes. Interesting. And so the first real serious attempt at writing for somebody other than myself or my immediate family or teachers was uh, the script that I wrote freshman year. The title of it was God's Game, and it was uh, the Faust story, except that it was a young man who sold his soul to the devil who later became a Catholic priest, and then when the devil comes back to collect his soul, he proposes a contest, which turns out to be the uh, church bingo game. <laughs> so, so, uh, and then did this get produced? Did they shoot it? This got produced. Oh, this was what I would give to see that. This is this was the first script that they chose and produced a little bit of uh twilight zone a little bit of man magazine in, in that first script i love that so that was your first one that got produced did they produce additional scripts that you there, wrote there was another script uh, the following year it was called the fourth wall and it was about an actor who knew that he was on television <laughs> and he was seeing a psychiatrist because 
he thought he was on television. There you go. So, so you have a lawsuit against the uh, Truman Show. Uh, actually, the uh, actually the uh, Gary Shandling Show. The Gary Shandling <laughs> Show. <laughs> which I mean, which is weird because it wasn't. I had not seen seen the Gary Shandling's. It's Gary Shandling Show at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but that was just another warped reality <laughs> type of thing. And then so you know, I I had that success in college, and it was like, wow. I can write stuff and people like it. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, focusing on writing television scripts, uh, movie scripts and television scripts, trying to get uh, into that. But I didn't have the courage to actually go out to California and try to do that in any kind of serious way. So I was trying to write and contact agents from Rochester, New York. Yeah. Which the agents weren't really interested in somebody from no. the other side of the country no. in the pre-internet days. Well, even now, even if, now, if you're not living in L.A., so I was so I was writing spec scripts and I was doing that and not getting with the agents. But Star Trek: The Next Generation was the one production in Hollywood that was taking unagented unagented scripts. Yep. So I said, I've never written anything as long as an hour. My longest, you know, I, 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 well, no, I take that back. I did write a uh, feature length script, which will never see the light of day. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) so I went, I decided to give Star Trek a try. I wrote a spec script for Deep Space Nine. uh, That was a uh, Julian Bashir and Kira Nerys story, which was. You know, and this was like second season, so they had not, they had been at loggerheads, and so this was a uh, story where he becomes interested in the Bajoran religion, and so they connect over that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I submitted that, and that got me an invitation to pitch to the producers uh, any other story ideas that I had. So then you actually went out, you, you got a meeting. I actually got a meeting. I I actually got a meeting and I flew out there. It was uh, December of 93. And it was the evening of the Paramount uh, Christmas party. So I tried to drive on. So I'm, you know, in Los Angeles for the first time in my life. 20 some years old. Oh, man. Driving through LA through this, uh, you know, with, with no GPS, no anything like that. Get to the Paramount studio just about at appointment time. And, of course, it's a Christmas party. There's no parking. <laughs> so I think I, I, I actually ended up taking a very distant and maybe not entirely legal spot, <laughs> making my way to uh, the Roddenberry building. Luckily, they were still waiting for me, and I got to sit down with uh, Rene Echevarria, mm-hmm. and he said, okay. Let's hear your pitches. What do you got, kid? What do you got, kid? And so I pitched the story about uh, Cisco and Jake, and they encounter some kind of weird anomaly that only allows them to, either one of them to exist in reality at one time, either one or the other. Oh, interesting. So, so if Jake is around, Cisco is off in some kind of... some. You know, alternate suspended yeah. animation, and he can, and so he can trigger whatever it is, and bring Cisco back, 
and then but Jake is going to be lost in yeah. this thing, and so interesting. So I pitched, you know, which I thought was a fabulous story. This was my leadoff story. This is the story that's going to get the sale. <laughs> I get I I get about one minute into the pitch, and he goes, and Renee goes, I'm going to stop you there. We already had something very similar to that, which was uh, the visitor. Oh, I can't remember that one. That is uh, old Jake. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not super similar, but I guess not, I can not understand. super similar, but it's you know, yeah, yeah. But but you know, Cisco is gone from the universe, and Jake has to spend the rest of his life trying to bring Cisco back to yeah. the universe. I'm gonna stop you there. What else have you got? And I had you know two other stories that I felt much less confident about. Yeah, yeah. and so I go. <laughs> just I, I i just kind of break down at that point saying i, I i've already blown it so <laughs> yes yeah, and I, I think i finally uh you know muddled my way through the other two pitches and i kind of got a yeah that's that's okay but it's you know not really. <laughs> but 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 it, renee was nice enough to say this is really tough to do your first time, and you didn't do that bad. And yeah, gave me a little pat go. on the back as I as he showed me out the door, and mm-hmm. and it and they did allow me to continue to pitch for uh, DS Nine and Voyager. And did you ever uh, get out there for another meeting, or were you just sending them stuff? I was just uh, they were doing phone pitches at that time okay. for people who weren't in LA. So I nice. did about. Did that about three or four times that I got to you know, pitch some stories and. Well, and even though none of those stories went anywhere, I mean that is still great experience. Oh yes, definitely. You've done it. You've pitched. The idea of, you know, of of coming up with a story and then paring it down to a pitch. Yeah, that just terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily for you. And for your readers. That wasn't the end of your Star Trek career. Well, luckily for me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because that's where you broke into professional publishing, correct? Right, yes. You know, after I'd been pitching for a while and I had all these stories that I had nothing else to do with, uh, I discovered the Star Trek online community. Mm -hmm. Because this was the 1990s and AOL was king and... (laughs) uh, you know, I, I found out people who wanted to put fanzines together and were looking for stories. And so I said, why not try to do that? So, you know, and so I did that. I mm-hmm. wrote some fan fiction. Uh, I actually wrote a uh, Star Trek X-Files crossover story <laughs> that Dayton Ward had read. And that kind of is what got us you know connected as friends Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i got some experience doing those fan fiction Mm -hmm. stories and then it was uh i think 90 i think it was 97 that they announced the strange new worlds contest and so i entered that uh for the first year and did not get into that and i had a small uh fit online on aol about you know, <laughs> and and then John Ordover, who was also online, was good was kind enough not to smack me in across the face. <laughs> you know, 
across across the uh, internet. Yeah. But instead, say, okay, you've gotten you gotten that out of your system. That's good. Now go write another one and and show how <laughs> how well you really can do. <laughs> and I kind of took that to heart, and I uh, went to work for the next mm-hmm. contest and managed to make it in for that year. You went the full awardee, right? You got. I I am a proud recipient of the awardee. Now I that... think the I think the third person to <laughs> to get placed three times in the Strange New Worlds contest. Yeah, the contest rules specified that you could get you could have up to three professional publications, and so if Strange New Worlds was your first professional publication, you could get up to three. SNW stories before you were given the boot to make room for other up and comers. Right, and it was it was a amateur, yeah, a non professional writer contest, and at that point in time, uh, the Science Fiction Writers Association rules were three short stories made you eligible for yeah. membership as a professional writer. So Dayton Ward was the first one to get. Uh, three stories in and so then it became this running thing that you were it was a wardy yes you got three stories my strange new world stories uh one was a next gen uh next gen ds9 type of crossover okay one of them was a dolmer and luxley that's story. right that's right so that was kind of uh it was classified as a ds9 story since that's where those characters have come from right even though it was more of a TNG story. Yeah. Uh, and then I had a Voyager story that was uh, that was Black Hats, and that was in uh, that was in Volume 3. And then Volume 5 was The Trouble with Borg Tribbles. Oh, yeah. So you got through the uh, Strange New Worlds, and then that got you called up to the show. That got me called up to the show. You know, Dayton, of course, had blazed the trail for all of us who, you know, he got in three times and then it was, you know, one, two, three, volumes one, two, three. And and then John Ordover says to him, well, now how about you write a novel for us? Yep. And it's like, so then I took it the third time and I waited for John Ordover's, Ordover to call. And he didn't call, and, <laughs> and then I wrote an and then I wrote an email to John Ordover saying, uh, "Can I write a novel too?" And he goes, "You know what? Why don't you talk to to uh, Keith DeCandido? Because Keith DeCandido at that point was getting uh, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebooks off the ground." And so I go, "Okay," and I talked to Keith, and Keith said, "Great. Here's here's this." story bible and here's the mm-hmm. first few uh stories and you know it, it took a it took a few tries a few different pitches uh but then i managed to sell him a story uh out of the cocoon which was my first novella in star trek and it was my first non-contest sale and then was that the longest piece of prose fiction that you'd written at that point? That was the longest piece of prose fiction I had written at that point. I think something in the in the line of 12,000 words. Mm-hmm. My problem has always been being competent enough in my writing to write longer. Where I started out with short stories, you know, very short stories, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to 
you know, stretch things out. <laughs> make it make it too obvious that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it, it's taken a few years to get to for me to work my way up to coming up with a piece of writing where I had enough enough to actually say. Well, I wonder though if maybe coming from the scripting background, if that helped you be focused. Probably so. Telling, I'm, you know, in scripts they tell you do do not direct on paper. Yeah. You know, and so you know you leave a lot of the any kind of actor's direction and any kind of camera direction to a real minimum. Yeah. So you know, and and of course you don't have any kind of internal dialogue or sensory scene setting. Yeah. So you got uh, out of the cocoon, mm-hmm. and then you you uh, went on to do a couple more SCE, didn't you? I I had other pitches for SCE. But uh, the line was canceled before uh, any of those got in. Oh, okay. uh, but I did have a novella in the uh, Next Generation 20th Anniversary uh, six-part series, Slings and Arrows. That's what I'm thinking of, because that also was an ebook. That was an ebook exclusive also. Yeah. Okay, so that one, you were working... With other writers, which which what? number was it? There was six. So yeah, that was uh, six authors, or actually seven. There was a, a team. Uh, let's see, Keith Canado, uh, Stephen and Christina York, uh, Phaedra Weldon, Terry Osborne, and uh, Bob Greenberger. Dear. I was the third book in the series, uh, title "The Insolence of Office." All all the titles had come out of uh, Hamlet's soliloquy. Ah. That also included this, the phrase slings and arrows. <laughs> there you go. Was there a lot of back and forth then amongst the writers as as you were working on it? Yeah, there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, it was, uh, the concept was the first year on the Enterprise E, following the uh, destruction of the D in Generations, because at the beginning of First Contact, they hadn't mentioned... You know, the Enterprise E had been out there for a year at that point. Yeah. So this was exploring the first year of the Enterprise E's voyage. And it was also, you know, to fill in a lot of the blanks that had been between generations and first contact. You know, I took, you know, my story uh, was about uh, Deanna Troy and Luxwana, mm-hmm. who... Uh, on Deep Space Nine, Loxwana had become had given up her ambassadorship and had become pregnant with the child of an alien, a non-Federation aligned alien, and she had to come back to Deep Space Nine. And Odo became the baby's father, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, the episode had never mentioned Deanna. So, what did Deanna think of all of this? And so that is where, what my story was about, and uh, also the B-plot was about Jordy losing his visor and getting his implants. That was then the springboard to when you got a uh, full-length novel. Right. My, my first full-length novel, or which was actually a short novel, in the Myriad Universes anthology. Oh, yes. Yes, uh, Infinity's Prism, and my story was A Less Perfect Union, and I believe it was 
one of the first crossovers between Enterprise and the original series, mm-hmm. where it had an uh, aged T'Pol interacting with Kirk and other characters. And it, you know, it was a, uh, you know, Star Trek alternate timeline type deal where Earth had not joined the uh, coalition of planets that was being uh, formed oh, yeah, yeah. at uh, in the uh, penultimate Enterprise episode. Yeah. And so just, you know, so it was kind of a spinoff from that and linking it into the original series timeline. Yeah. I really enjoyed that novel, your characterization of the uh, uh, elder to Paul. It really d- drove the story. It was, and um, and then it was on the strength of that showing that then you got a standalone. Losing the Peace, which was uh, one of the four follow-up novels to Dave Mack's tr- uh, Destiny trilogy. Uh, along with uh, Keith DeCandido, he did the first uh, Typhon Pact novel. Uh, Kirsten Beyer did uh, it was her first Voyager novel of her uh, re- reworking of the Voyager series. And uh, Christopher Bennett wrote a uh, Titan book. And all of that was encompassed under an umbrella uh, that was referred to as cleaning up Max Mess. <laughs> because... Because Mac had... Yeah, you never completely... want to write the book after Mac. <laughs> he had uh, destroyed about a third of the Federation and uh, the Klingon Empire and the Romulan Empire. And that's why we love Dave Mac. And then uh, after that, uh, I got to do a uh, original series standalone, which was The Shocks of Adversity. You start off, you do a little fan fiction, it's like, oh, well, here's this Strange New Worlds thing, and then it's like these dominoes that, that fall. Right, yeah. And next thing you know, you've written Star Trek novels, which was why you got started as a geek in the first place. <laughs> Pretty much so, yes. Little child. So, yeah, both you and I are in a position where we have turned like one of our earliest childhood loves into a professional it's, relationship with the franchise. And it's... Uh, it's pretty crazy when you think yeah, about it. It's like... <laughs> it is indeed. Okay, so across many short stories, novellas, novels, having been able to write across a substantial amount of the uh, franchise both in the various series and the various TV series and the original Corps of Engineers series, original in fiction, did you have a... I don't mean to make you choose between your babies, but in, in broader terms... But please choose between your babies. But in broader terms, I mean, what what is your favorite series? What is your favorite part of the franchise to write for? Or do you have... You know, I, 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 really, I really can't pick... A favorite of my babies because I enjoy writing across mm-hmm. the franchise so much. Mm-hmm. Writing for Deep Space Nine intimidates me a little bit because it was just so well written and mm-hmm. it forced me to up my game. <laughs> uh, writing for TO, the TOS novel was a bit of a challenge because you know there's already been fifty years worth of stories in there, and yep. you know what can I do that doesn't repeat? But is still true to the to the original series. 
So, I mean, I, the most fun I've had was definitely with the alternate timeline yeah. and being able to, you know, take take the pieces and really mix them up and, you know, twist them around into, you know, looking at them from different angles and yeah, matching whole, up uh, yeah. one piece from this series and one piece from the other series. Even though there's certain... Uh touchstones, certain motifs that have to stay the same to keep it a Star Trek story. Obviously, in doing the alternate timeline thing, you get to really experiment in ways that you never would. In, yeah, in, absolutely. Know. If Simon and Schuster called you up tomorrow and said, Bill, you can write any Star Trek thing you want, where would you go first? I would probably have trouble answering the question right <laughs> off the bat, like yeah. like you just rung it on me. Uh, you know, but you know, given given my given the choice, I would like to try to do something that is universe spanning. Mm -hmm. You know, something that brings in as much of the Star Trek universe as I can. Well, I mean, I can tell you that you know some of the projects that I've had you know, marinating in my brain for a while. I, I, I wanted to do a, a Zephram Cochrane novel for a mm -hmm. while, mm -hmm. which would bridge the gap between the uh, eccentric drunkard that we saw at the end of Generations with the revered figure that was introduced in the original series. And yeah. to just, you know, look at that character's development uh, as well as Earth's development and the early relationships mm -hmm. with the Vulcans. Of course, uh, I think Chris Bennett has already covered a lot of that area with uh, his Enterprise novels. And then another novel idea that I had basically would have been the history, the early history of the Ferengi Federation relationship, mm. which would it would basically be you know season one. But from the Ferengi's point of view, yeah. <laughs> and maybe with a little retconning there to and smooth with a, over, with a little bit, little bit of retconning <laughs> to make the Ferengi, uh, you know, not uh, complete caricatures, and was kind of what I wanted to do with that. But you've got uh, other original fiction and stuff. You want to chat a little bit about some of your other? Oh, we could chat titles. about that certainly. <laughs> well, why don't I start with the? Original ebook that I put out a couple of years ago since yes. we were talking about mm -hmm. early influences, and that is my novella, A Dimension of Death, which takes place in the early 1960s on the lot of Metro Goldwyn Mayer, where Rod Serling was producing The Twilight Zone. And there's a mysterious death on the set of The Twilight Zone. And in the course of looking into this, uh, Studio Security brings in another person who happens to be on the lot, producing his series, The Lieutenant, uh, one Eugene Roddenberry. <laughs> and so you have uh, Gene Roddenberry and Rod Serling off to solve murder. I love this idea on, on several levels. Of course, there's just the obvious two iconic science, fig science fiction figures yes. in, in television. Of course, this is pre-Star Trek. But you bring those two things together. And you had mentioned earlier, you know, so, I mean, Star Trek and The Twilight Zone were both uh, 
important shows in your development as a viewer and a writer and yep. just, you know, in mm -hmm. the genre. And so bringing those two things together, uh, both on sort of the macro level that it's like these icons of TV, but then also that it's on this personal level is a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a sucker for period pieces. And so it uh, you get to have a lot of fun. There's a lot of challenges and a lot of fun with writing a period piece yes. and having yeah. to pay attention to the fact that you know, phones are attached to walls. Phone, phones are attached <laughs> to walls, and they're phone booths, and... Yeah, and you must have done a lot of research on both of them at that time period. Yep, I, I, I went through uh, a couple of uh, biographies there are on Roddenberry, and the two or three on Sterling. Uh, I did a lot of reference on... There's a uh, very nice coffee table book about the history of MGM Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually went and uh, rented a few uh, episodes of Have Gun, Will Travel that oh, mm -hmm. was Gene's biggest claim to fame at that point in time. Uh, and I actually found some uh, episodes of Lieutenant online, which was very interesting because... He had a lot of the actors from they would use in Star Trek. Majel Barrett was on that show, and Leonard Nimoy was on yep. that show, uh, and Gary Lockwood. Mm -hmm. He was the uh, lead character, the the titular lieutenant. Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, and that was a show that you know most people don't even know about. It ran for one season and it disappeared. But you know, if it had gone on longer, we would never have had Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the one, the one, I'm not going to give away the twist at the end. <laughs> so you self-published that, so that was yeah. your introduction into that uh, new thing that the kids do. Yep, that was my experiment, yep. uh, to just to see, you know, I, try, I, try, I tried to sell it in a couple of places, and, you know, it, it's a, it was a difficult sale because it's it's not actually science fiction, and it was a longer piece, so, you know, the magazines weren't really interested in it, so it was, a, you know, it was... Interesting to get into the marketing, mm -hmm. and I created my own cover, you know, mm -hmm. with my very rudimentary Photoshop knockoff free software, mm -hmm. and put that cover onto a postcard with the little description on the back, and so that you know, it's a lot nicer than going to conventions saying, "I have an ebook." You can. Go on online yeah. and just search for it, yeah. as opposed to something actually physical. To say here you are, okay. And there was also another cool project which you were part of as well. Uh, yes, the Crazy Eight Press Redeos series. The concept of which was that uh, at the Olympic Games in two thousand and twelve, all of the gods from all of history and prehistory suddenly reappear on Earth and announce, we're back, worship us. And the uh, craziness that ensues from that event. That was a fun bit of business. There was, because um, there was a lot of leeway in what to do, mm -hmm. uh, like which gods you would have in your story and what where your setting would be in the world. It was a whole lot of fun. Yeah. With a... You know, great bunch of people there at the Crazy Eights, uh, Aaron Rosenberg, Bob Greenberger. Yeah, a lot of names that'll be familiar to Star Trek fans because um, over the years, you know, so much of the 
connections that uh, that we've made have been amongst people who, that were published in, at the Simon and Schuster yeah. Star Trek. I mean, and, and you know, it, it comes directly from my Star Trek experience. You know, I would never have met yeah people exactly had it not been for the Star Trek publications and being invited to shore leave. So, but the, you know, that was fun. I enjoy. I got to really experiment a lot with. Uh, different types of characters. My the second story I did is written from the viewpoint of a young Asian American girl. And as it turns out, you yourself are not a young Asian American girl. I as it turns out, uh I have not done I have not gotten the uh DNA test back yet. <laughs> but there I to my knowledge I am not a yeah. young Asian girl. But it was really good to challenge myself to get out of the white male yeah. <laughs> viewpoint and you know i hopefully did a good job yeah. of it well and, and this i mean and, and that touches upon a, a great uh topic of uh, much discussion in writerly circles uh and and elsewhere but uh, the idea of representation where if you're a person who belongs to a group that tends to get a lot of the breaks <laughs> like being a white guy mm-hmm. that uh you know it's kind of it's kind of nice it's kind of important to uh try to bring in some uh a wider perspective into your fiction it was a, a conscious effort to try to stretch myself instead of just writing a you know european god yeah to get into a different type of story. You know, and, there, there are more stories out there. And you did different stories every time, right? My first, I... my first and my third story are connected. They oh, do my... have the same uh, characters, but... Uh, I forgot that. The genre is, is uh, probably best labeled as urban fantasy. Yeah. And I had never done urban fantasy before when I was invited... And so that was um, another part of it that was uh, a challenge that you were working in a different genre with different rules. One of the funny things about that is that my first story, after all the gods show up, I, in my story, uh, established that Pope Benedict uh, steps down from the papal throne (laughs) to allow a uh, younger and more able man to lead the church and strangely enough <laughs> within a year of that publication pope benedict stepped down so that was a fun little twist in history that i got a little pleasure out of uh being the uh, fortune teller in that situation and you've recently gotten a uh Interesting story in a uh, small press anthology. Yes, uh, uh, Zombies Need Brains is the name of the <laughs> publisher. Yes. That is a great uh, it's a, small it, press it, name. It's yeah. a great small press name. And uh, they last year published an anthology, Second Round Return to the Urbar, which is uh, the second volume of short stories that take place in what is essentially the first bar that has ever existed. It is run by Gilgamesh. And he has and he has been cursed from time immemorial to 
be part of this bar, which manifests itself in different ways, in different places, in different time periods. So just about anyone can walk into this bar. So just about anyone can walk into this bar at any point in history. You know, going back to ancient ancient Babylonia, Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. to, you know, the future Mars colonies. My story takes place in the 1920s during Prohibition in New York, uh, and it involves a psychic medium who is actually a real medium. He has actual connection to the other realm, but he uses that in a very dishonest way. <laughs> and he happens to wander into this bar in a very dishonest way, and he's having trouble because people are starting not to believe anymore. <laughs> Harry Houdini was was very famous, you know, right before his death for debunking a yeah. lot of these psychics and their activities. Yeah, he would catch, the, with his knowledge of magic, he would catch them at their tricks. Right. So the psychic finds the Urbar, uh, and Gilgamesh gives him a way to actually draw Harry Houdini from the afterworld <laughs> to prove to the world... <laughs> That what he does is real. And then there's a little twist at the end. Which we won't spoil. Which we will not spoil. I feel like I'm missing something. Did we leave something out of oh, your I'm career? Oh, I'm sure we are. I mean, there are other web publications. There are other... A lot of them were for websites that have since gone dead. And semi-pro ah. magazines that unfortunately do not last as long as we might like. And But I've, I've had the opportunity to experiment with a lot of other styles outside of Star Trek. Yeah. Well, and even when you are writing something that's uh, genre, like the Urbar story you were just telling, it's still a 1920s thing, too. So even though it's a genre story, it's also a period piece. Yeah. I also, you know, like you, I've always been very drawn to period pieces. Uh, you know, I was a huge fan of Mad Men. Other things, you know, time travel and alternate timelines have always been yeah. been big fans of. We've covered this uh, sort of the, the arc of your uh, writing career uh, up till now. Uh, one thing that interests me about this is, you know, you started out more visually. You were doing the comic strips. And when you were in college, you were kind of looking more at TV production. So if you were to uh, pop in on your younger self and say, well, actually, you're going to end up publishing a lot of prose fiction, would it, would it just blow your mind? Would you just say, why would I be doing that? Or do you... <laughs> uh, I, I, it would blow my mind in the fact that I would actually be able to write an entire novel. Because <laughs> one thing that I've noticed um, with a, a lot of the friends I've made over the years through the Star Trek connection and stuff, see, I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer by like the sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And then when I started getting to know more writers... Almost none of them wanted to be writers. <laughs> they were drawn into it because they loved Star Trek, and so they would start noodling around on fan fiction, and one thing would lead to another, and then suddenly they're successful writers. And so I'm always uh, interested in how people find themselves in the writing game uh, when they weren't, when they didn't set out from from a younger age, saying, "Well, when I when I grow up, I want to be a writer." A lot of them. We're saying, when I grow up, I want to be, you know, whatever. They were right, other things, right, right. but they find their way in. So would you 
in in your formative years, let's say, would you have, would you have just been I want to be a a screenwriter or would have or a producer or or did you have an, a, a, any feeling for what you wanted to be? I don't really think that I you know if we go pre college, I don't really think I had any real idea of what I wanted to do. I was you know I, I was good in school. I was mm-hmm. you know English was actually one of my poorer subjects. <laughs> And uh, mostly because I did not like the assigned reading. I would rather read Douglas Adams than yeah. Oliver Twist. And so, you know, I, you know, if you had asked me in, you know, junior high, I probably would have said, you know, I'm going to be an accountant or something mm-hmm. along those lines. And then I went to college for video production. And to be really honest, I'm not entirely sure how I landed on that. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is 30 years ago now uh, yeah, yeah. and I knew I loved television mm-hmm. very much like uh your usual co-host <laughs> decided yeah. that she enjoys the uh mass media and wanted to get into that yeah. so well but so now you're in a position where you are a professionally published writer mm-hmm. and so what have you got coming up next well I am uh still working on my original novel which I really hope to get done uh, before year's end. Before this year's end? Before this year's end, yes. Okay, well. It's 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 a... Clock is ticking. Well, you know, NaNoWriMo is coming up, and so... There you go. And I have a... Uh, I've been doing a couple of nonfiction pieces for uh, ATB Publishing. Mm-hmm. They do uh, pop culture uh, books. I had a... Uh, review in their Star Trek Next Generation retrospective last year, and within the next month or less, uh, they're putting out a Buffy volume where I have another uh, review, another episode review in that. Yeah, the episode is uh, Living Conditions from season... It's the second episode of, I believe, season four, her first her freshman year at college, Buffy's Freshman year of college. The episode with Kathy Newman, who is the annoying roommate that she gets assigned to at college. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who turns out to be a interdimensional demon. Like you do. Like you do. And then... When, you're, when you live in Sunnydale. And then we're not going to really say any details at this juncture, but then you and I are noodling around on a project together. That's a secret. That's a yeah. Don't tell anyone. But we, 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 we both in this podcast have expressed our love of period pieces. So I think we can at least say that much. There you go. There's a little... A little, a little, uh, little taste. Yeah. A little incentive to come back. It's genre and it's a period piece. That's all we're saying. So I'm kind of interested in the comparing and contrasting the original fiction to working in the franchise. And if you had any comments or stories or anything about the different challenges well i mean the the biggest challenge is that when you are working in the franchise and you are working on contract for an editor on deadline <laughs> you have to hit that deadline when you're writing your own stuff and uh basically the only deadline i have are self-imposed ones it's very easy to say uh, well, I'm not going to make that deadline. I'd like an extension, please. And 
just up that extension sometimes goes out for um much longer than we want to admit that it has gone <laughs> as it's, it's like the old douglas adams quote uh i love deadlines i love the sound they make <laughs> as they whoosh by yeah. every writer in our audience right now is shaking their head in total agreement when you have that contract when you have that deadline it seems like it's so easy to just crank through and get a novel done. Mm-hmm. And then when you're trying to write your own novel, it's like, well, suddenly five years have gone by or more, and you're like, well, why haven't I finished this? And I, it's very I wrote easy. that Star Trek novel in two months. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and I can't. You, it's much harder to say to your editor at Simon Schuster, yeah, well, I had a really rough week at work, and uh, you know, my, you know. I, had a call from my mother and da 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 da. <laughs> yeah. I'm just not feeling it this week. I'm not feeling it this week. <laughs> They're not going to accept as well as I can. I will when I go. You know what? I'd rather just watch Rick and Morty instead of writing right now. <laughs> In comparing and con- contrasting those things, we hit upon a couple of the key things that can make the writer's life just a uh, you know a living nightmare. And yet, man, we, we just so love it, don't we? We keep doing it. We keep going we coming keep... back to it. We can don't... <laughs> I mean, it would make sense for me to just say, <laughs> you know what? Maybe writing isn't it. Maybe I'll just <laughs> concentrate on the 9 to 5 job. That's what pays my bills. That's what pays the mortgage. And Yeah. But no, I, I we love it. We love it. We love For it. For all its pain and all its... You have those rejections and they sting. And they, you know, you get a bunch of them and they pile... The stinging, the pain continues <laughs> to build. I heard, I heard a, a quote on a uh, podcast recently mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, perseverance and working through failures. And uh, I think it was Thomas Edison who said, you know, I, I have not failed i've just found 500 ways that this does not work <laughs> which is a yeah it's a important I, I think that's probably an important perspective to keep is that you know we're not going to get we're not going to get things perfect mm-hmm. the way we want them the first time through we just have to keep at it words of wisdom for all the uh, beginning writers out there and intermediate writers and Professional and, old, <laughs> and old pro writers. Is there anything else that you want to drop on the listeners before we uh, wrap up? Uh, I want to just thank you for letting me sit in Ella's seat uh, <laughs> this month for the podcast. And well, thank you. We've been talking about getting me on this machine for a while now, <laughs> and now that Ella's out of the country, I've gotten the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Ella. And uh, and then uh, let's see. Well, the last thing I do um, now you don't you don't have a website, but I do not have a website. You are on the social media, so if you just want to tell the peoples where they can find you, I tweet on the Twitter, and uh, you can. My handle is at b leisner, even though I have my name up there as William Leisner, and yeah, I keep. People updated with my projects and silly jokes that pop into my head and <laughs> things that annoy me about the world at large. 
and there's a lot of that these days. Oh, uh, let's not go into yeah, that. We're not we've, going there. We've already been recording for a couple yeah. of hours now. All right. Well, thanks again. And we're back with Ella Skyping in. Woo! Since our last show, you haven't gotten up to a whole bunch of geeky stuff, but you probably have some geeky things to talk about. We had uh, finals. So yeah, I was writing my um, my final essays. I wrote that big essay on Hitchcock. That's geeky. We're film geeks. Uh-huh. Classic. So you've been experiencing uh, a lot of Hitchcock films for the first time. Yeah. Well, yeah, because last semester I took that Hitchcock class and I had like literally never seen a Hitchcock movie before ever so yes yeah, so that was fun um i have a really great uh professor so that's nice he's actually from the u.s as well so what have been your favorite hitchcock films that you've seen now for like sheer entertainment i would say psycho psycho blew me away which is hilarious because every other movie like vertigo hate vertigo <laughs> hate vertigo so much <laughs> but psycho like really went above and beyond uh, the hype for me. That might have been the first movie we watched, and I was like, oh, this class is going to be so good. And what about Rear Window? I think Psycho is number one, and then I think Shadow of a Doubt mm -hmm. and Rear Window tie for the number two spot for okay. me. Yeah, Rear Window um, is one of my faves. Yes. And Psycho, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's those three. Yeah. I would say that if you or your... Uh, young daughter <laughs> hasn't seen any Hitchcock I would say watch those three and then if anybody tries to talk to you about any of the other ones just say no thank you sir <laughs> I'm here to talk about those three and that's all of the ones you've seen <laughs> some of them like suspicion the which I think I don't know I think a lot of people don't like suspicion I think there's a, a weird amount of people that do like suspicion. It's a, it's a bad movie. Um, it is an injury. We can get into it later. It's an interesting movie, but it's a bad movie. Um, maybe <laughs> worth a watch, but only if you're like into this, into the whole like female paranoia. It, yeah. Hitchcock is a very interesting person. <laughs> suspicion, horrible movie. It's like, and that part of it, I think was due to the studio. Mm -hmm. Cause like even the name, he was like, we should call it Johnny. It's way more creepy and weird. And they were like, no, we're going to stick with calling, do the, doing the one word S names for movies. We're going to do <laughs> Suspicion, Sabotage. Other, but then other movies, it's like he had much more creative control on. And it's still a disaster. <laughs> but then you watch like Psycho, which is a cinematic masterpiece. And yeah. why? <laughs> <laughs> when he got started, the medium was so young, so everyone was just making things up as they went along and inventing things. And surely yeah. he, uh, as a uh, director who became very well known for certain directorial flourishes, uh, well, yes. of course, that, that was something that he developed. The Hitchcock touch. Over the years, as you know, as he, biz. yeah, yep. got more and more... Uh, and his his cameos, he had to move farther and farther towards the beginning of the movie because he knew everyone would just be distracted <laughs> yeah. looking for him. He was like, I gotta just I just gotta be on screen for a half a second in the first five minutes. <laughs> I wrote my paper on um basically whether or not he was a misogynist. Mm -hmm. And the answer I believe 
is a hard no. And I think pretty much everyone that listens to this podcast is going to be like, but what are you talking about? In every one of his movies, a pretty blonde lady is tortured and killed. And it's like, okay, but... (laughs) These sorts of questions always have much more complex answers. People tend to go for the simple answer. But I think that Hitchcock was a complicated guy. It's like, did he have some issues? Maybe. Oh, yeah. Did he cast pretty blonde models on purpose in his movies? Yes. (laughs) Long story short, was he a misogynist? No. He was a little bit and maybe more like a large jerk. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you recently got to do something that I tried to do unsuccessfully (laughs) when I was in England. Yes. Tell us about Uh, that. So me and my friend... Paige, we took a day trip to Nottingham and Sherwood Forest. (laughs) Well, and I want to interject here. When you were pretty young, we started watching the classic British Robin Hood TV series in glorious black and white. What's that guy's name? His the actor's name is something so ironic. It's like Richard Green or something yeah. who plays Robin Hood, and it's like ooh, like ooh. Oh. so. <laughs> yeah, you've been a Robin Hood person since you were a kid. Forever, forever. Yeah. <laughs> and when I was doing my study abroad thirty-five years ago, uh, <laughs> my buddy Tom and I decided to go to Sherwood Forest, and so we went out. We were out on the street to catch the bus. And after all these years, I can't remember all the details, if the bus was taking us right there or if we were taking the bus to a train station or or what was going on. But we were waiting for the bus. And in England, you flag the buses down. There's never this, like, confusion about (laughs) between the driver and the people that are waiting for the at the bus stop which um, i still it make i know it's like a it's like the thing here it's just like what you do but every time i feel like such a jerk <laughs> waving at the bus i feel like an <laughs> idiot yeah every single time i know i loved it it makes so much more sense than than the way we do it here but so anyway we were standing out on the street at the bus stop and here was coming the bus we could see the number we could see it was our bus and we were waving frantically at it and the bus never even slowed down it just whizzed right past us <laughs> so i don't know what happened there if it was completely full or i i don't know what but so that day was scrubbed it's like okay we'll have to try again and so i think the thing was is that it was probably kind of late in the school year so that we didn't have that many ch- uh chances to try again left before we came back to the states and so we just it it never came together so i never got to sherwood but you did (laughs) i did and i think we're planning on i think taking you there when you visit so you're gonna make it but yeah me and Paige uh went to sherwood and Paige is not like a nerd she just kind of like wanted to go to sherwood and nottingham um eh, just because england you know, we got up early, we took the train out to Nottingham, and then you have to do sort of like, you do that like a shuffle where you buy like a day pass for their stuff and get on another bus, and that bus takes you like almost to Sherwood, and then you sort of like, it's very, it's very just like funny and uh, a little strange, but um, it's just like literally, it's like at the edge of like a neighborhood, like yeah. a suburb of Nottingham. You just like walk around like a corner, and it's like a driveway, and they have a... They have a couple of buildings that are more like 
community centers now, I think, because they had to do like art classes there and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. they have a, they just built a brand new visitor center like really, really recently. So it's still like very shiny and like modern and new. But yeah, so there's this big visitor center and then there's like um, a big field. I get the I get the impression that a lot of what they do there is like elementary school field trips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, because they have this awesome playground that I really almost was like, Paige, I think we got to go spend like 10 minutes over there because I'm, <laughs> I want to climb on that. But, um, yeah, no. And so you just get there and obviously it's like free cause it's just like the woods and you just like walk in, but it's very, it's so strange. It's like you're walking on, on your way in. You're just walking past, like on your like left hand is just like someone's like field. Like it's just farms. Yeah. But then in front of you and on your right is just like literally Sherwood Forest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they still have they have uh, the major oak there, which is Mm -hmm. an oak tree that's like over a thousand years old. And so that's crazy and huge. And like parts of it are being like held up by. (laughs) Yeah, it's all propped up because they're trying to keep it going. They're like, please just don't fall apart. It's weird because it's like in looking at it in reality, it's just like that's any just like wooded part of yeah. England. <laughs> yep. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's like surreal being there and we, and it was like a little foggy and like all of the forest floor was just like, like carpeted and like orange leaves. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just like very, very pretty and like very quiet. I remember, I think we were there on like a weekday. Well, I think it was a Friday, but it was like a, it was early on a Friday. Like, we mm-hmm. got there, like, midday on a Friday. And so it was just, like, very, very quiet, and there were not that many people around. So we just, like, walked around for a little bit. We did see a little group of maybe, like, second or third graders who were there on a field trip with a dude walking with them around the forest that was dressed like Friar Tuck, which was, like, <laughs> nice. the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. And they were all <laughs> so excited. We went and we got some... uh some cheese toasties at the, uh, they have like a little cafeteria in the visitor center, but yeah. And then beyond like Sherwood. So you have, I mean, it's like the whole place is just like gorgeous. And then, um, I don't realize here that it's weird for me to be living in such a big city mm-hmm. until I leave and there's like trees and I'm like, Oh my God. It's like <laughs> something in me just like, like I, I exhale like cement air or something. <laughs> And it just, it's so, like, odd, because I feel like in Minnesota, like, Minneapolis is, like, a big city, but you drive for, like, 15 minutes, and you're, like, on a farm in Minnesota. Yeah. (laughs) And here, it's, like, everywhere I go, I take the tube, and so whenever I go someplace, because even, like, Hyde Park or whatever, it's gorgeous, but you're, like, in the city, and there's people around. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so to be like in Sherwood and just be like like walking around, it was like very like like exhale some weird like pollution and just like recharge. So then you get to go like Nottingham is <laughs> adorable, and they have um, Nottingham has this weird like history because the entire place is built on top. It's like sandstone, mm-hmm. but because it's sandstone, people forever like we're just like carving weird like caves out. And so there's still the, there's like just networks and networks of these caves under the town because people would like live just like underground. 
or you would like carve out your own like wine cellar in mm -hmm. your house. And so people, so many of these caves are just like weird privately owned like holes because you'll just buy a house, but then in the creepy basement of your house is like a weird trap door and it's just like <laughs> a sandstone cave under your house. Yeah. And then after it's so, like people were living in them and then like during World War II they were like bomb shelters. Yeah. And so it's this whole weird thing, but it's like so you can just go there's like this mall and you just like go in the mall and in like the basement of the mall is like Nottingham cave tours and you go in there and you pay like 6 pounds. And you like go down this weird skinny spiral staircase and then you're just in like this cave cool. and you just walk around for like ever. And there's still like natural like water and like weird stuff. And there's still like some, some of it is like, oh, here's like a reconstruction um, of what it would have looked like when people were like living in squalor on, mm -hmm. on like underground. Um <laughs> But then some of it is like, oh, like that's a wall and that's a well and just like weird, crazy, creepy stuff. <laughs> but then you look up and it's like, that's like, obviously the, uh, uh, like we're under a mall. That's obviously like weird cement honeycomb mall building. <laughs> <laughs> so that's crazy. They have, obviously they have Nottingham Castle, which is uh, unfortunately under um, construction for a couple of years, I think. But you can still walk all the way around it, and that whole thing is, like, built into this weird, like, bluff, and that's the same thing where there's just, like, weird – you can look in – because we walked all the way around the outside of it still, and you can still mm -hmm. look in, and there's, like, weird, like, holes in the sandstone and, like, up just, like, all kinds of weird stuff, and that's crazy, and I'm a bit – I'm a nerd for castles. <laughs> 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 um, so that's gorgeous, and then we went um, to – there's a pub in Nottingham that – is one of like 11 pubs in England that claim to be the oldest pub in England. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's called like ye old Jerusalem. <laughs> and so we went there and it's like, that is like half of it is like sandstone wall. It's like half of the, like it just was built into like this oh. bluff. Mm -hmm. And so you go in and in parts of it, the ceiling is like sandstone and the walls are like sandstone. It was so um, strange and hilarious and amazing and it was like a it was like a scene in a movie where like in like a like a western where like the you know out of town cowboy like kicks open the <laughs> door and it just like everything goes quiet and like somebody like stops playing the piano <laughs> it's it's weird because we just like we got there and we were like oh like all of these people and their grandparents and their grandparents and their grandparents have lived in nottingham since the beginning of time yeah <laughs> And then we just walk in, there's like eight people like older than you, um, just like singing. And I was like, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know why, like it's, it's popping for like grandparents in ye old Jerusalem at 6 PM on a Friday, but it was popping. Well, that's, that's the classic British pub culture. Oh, definitely. Where... Like everyone down everyone's down the pub everyone's like, down was, the pub and yeah. doing sing-alongs and yeah. yeah no and i'm i'm like joking like everybody was like nobody stopped talking everyone was very everyone we had interactions with was very friendly but like the bartender and the dude who watched us order from the bartender were both visibly confused <laughs> by the two like 20 year old american girls being like can i have a pint of this cider <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I saw you guys have old moot on tap. That's my favorite. So thank you. Um, 
<laughs> so, uh, getting back to uh, being a film geek, now this semester you've got another couple of film classes, right? Yeah, yeah. This semester I'm taking a course called London on Film, which is, as the name suggests, about how London is represented in movies, mm -hmm. um, both American and British. Uh, and that's very fun. And in that class, the first movie we watched was um, Notting Hill, mm -hmm. which I actually had never seen before, even though like British rom-coms specifically is like a micro genre that I love. But I'd never seen Notting Hill, which is like obviously a classic. And then um, partially, I think because of the movie and partially because we just hadn't been there, like literally that weekend, me and my friend Hannah like went to Notting Hill mm -hmm. and it was like a Saturday. And so we got there and I don't know if you have, you've seen Notting Hill yes. a long time ago. Yeah. I saw it like way back, probably when it came first came out on VHS. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a big, like a bit in the movie is like the market and like, it has this really fantastic scene, like showing the passing of time where like he's walking the main character played by, you know, heartthrob McGee. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> he's walking through the market but as he's walking like the seasons are changing and like mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning there's like a pregnant woman and at the end she's like holding a baby and it's like it's really cool like long like shot um and so we get there and we're like okay like let's walk we were going to there were some charity shops that we want to stop into we wanted to get like something to drink i think so we were just like walking through we were like sort of making our way to because the door the door of um, the main character's house is like still there and it's still painted the same color. And so we were like, okay, well we'll go over there eventually, but we'll just walk. But like the market was like all set up and it was like blocks and blocks <laughs> <laughs> of this market. And so it was weird. Cause it's like, we stepped off of like the tube and like two seconds later we were like in the movie, like yeah. literally I was, like I saw that storefront in the movie. I saw that, like I'm walking <laughs> through this thing. And yeah, we like walk around and we get to like the door and there's like a couple of other girls there like taking pictures with it. And there is, um, the dude in the movie like owns like a book shop mm -hmm. and, um, the bookshop in the movie is based on a bookshop that used to actually be in Notting Hill. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bookshop in Notting Hill and that bookshop is on, on the same location as the bookshop that the move the, as the bookshop, the real bookshop. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so and they have a they have a sign at the bookshop which is just as confusing as every all the words that i'm saying <laughs> um so there's there's a bookshop that's neither the original bookshop nor the bookshop in the movie but there is a notting hill bookshop <laughs> so everyone goes there like take pictures with it no yeah so we got we took pictures uh with the the door to the dude's apartment and um immediately after I stepped off of, cause this is like a real play, like people live there and I step off of the stoop and immediately the door opens and someone comes out and I was like, Oh my God, it scared me so bad. And I was already so embarrassed to be like taking pictures with this stupid door from a rom-com. Um, but yeah, that was fun. And then we went, we found, um, there's a bit in the movie with like, um, in some neighborhoods of London, they have like these private gardens in the middle of like a, it's like a square block almost. And then in the middle of it is like, a garden and you have a key to the garden if you live at, on, in a house that like borders the garden. Yeah. Um, and so that's like a whole thing in the movie. And so we went to like the garden that they filmed at. Mm -hmm. And that was funny because it's like, when we got there, I, I thought that it was going to be just like 
oh, they had filmed like literally this specific gate, but we got there and I was like, they walked down this whole street. Like I look down the street and it's so funny just because I don't, you know, we live in Minnesota. We don't go to filming locations a lot. And so I like turned and I was like, that, like we're in the mood. Like they shot right here. Like they walked around that corner. Yeah. My other film class this semester is called uh, Screening History. And so it's kind of just about like how the past is represented in historical films. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we watched, um, so Kate Blanchett in like 1998 starred as Elizabeth the first in a movie called Elizabeth, mm-hmm. which is a, a fun movie. They had a, a extremely high budget for 1998, but is also like one of the most flawed movies, flawed historical <laughs> movies, at least I've ever seen in my entire life. This movie was not only hella sexist, but was also transphobic, homophobic, and basically by the end of it, just completely demonized femininity to the point of me just like having an existential crisis walking out of the movie theater. I think it's going to be fine, but there's always some boys in any college seminar who um, think a lot of themselves yeah so it's going to be interesting i am i'm kind of i'm excited because it doesn't seem like anyone's like a jerk but i'm like also i'm like i'm going to ruin you if you say something (laughs) stupid like (laughs) i'm a great film student is the moral of the story is what we're saying here so um uh it's fun to be a film student because your classes are just watching movies and then um destroying them piece by piece or lifting them up scene by scene thank you this has been my ted talk <laughs> all right so one super geeky thing that's uh, happened since you last checked <laughs> in was uh season two of discovery has started uh, um, and thank can i just say thank god <laughs> <laughs> i didn't course... like, realize until i like, literally clicked play i was like oh my god i didn't know how much i needed this <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, people can get your full commentary on the new season by checking out the Discoverage podcast. Yes, the Discoverage. It's so much fun. So we're not going to go in depth here, but uh, I'm assuming you were quite happy with uh, the first um, episode. I'm, uh, I'm quite happy. The second Ethan Peck is on screen as Spock, I'm going to have a mental breakdown. <laughs> I really um, liked the uh, the glimpses we got of young Spock in that first episode. And I liked some of the details that, um, like when we first see him in his childhood room, there's a three-dimensional chess set in his yep. room, which mm-hmm. I loved. And then when we see his quarters on the Enterprise, you see his Vulcan lyre, you see a uh, sort of ceremonial bell thing. Oh my God. That, yeah. That, that looks like bells. we saw in a muck time. Yeah. When they were on Vulcan. So there was really nice attention to detail, both in his childhood room and on his quarters on the enterprise. So someone posted online a picture of the little boy Spock. Oh my God. That little boy is so cute. Yeah. Next to, the little boy as he was represented in the animated series. <laughs> yeah. And it almost exactly looked, <laughs> oh my gosh. I was like, 
it almost looked like they cast that kid to look like He's the animated version. His, his little round face. Yeah. Oh, man. Kills me. We hear um, Spock's voice for the first time. We don't see him, but we hear his, yeah. his recording of his voice. And even that, I was like, oh, <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought it all came together quite nicely. Yes. Overall, I was so impressed um, by everything the writing the cinematography like it's a just a like a work of television art i could write a paper about just that episode and what that episode means for star trek and television going forward but i'm not going to (laughs) it was very well like the first season even more so it's just it's very big you know they're they're spending lots of money there, I was literally in the middle of this episode. I was like, the amount, the money they paid. I'm like, I hope they saved some for the rest of the season. Because <laughs> tune into Discoverage. Uh, we go live every week, yep. and um, you can picture me nursing an energy drink. And you did Discoverage episodes for uh, the short treks as well. Yes, you did. And I got to stand in for you uh, a couple times. I was so sad. A couple times. The thing about being a college student who also needs to take advantage of traveling while (laughs) in Europe um, is that sometimes the cheapest option really interferes with your own personal life goals. So like (laughs) I'm, and you can imagine because I'm attached enough to this podcast that I, it wasn't even a question for me that I was going to stay up late enough Mm -hmm. to go live. And I mean, I even had a conversation with Aaron where he was like, what are we going to do next year when you're gone? I don't know what I'm going to do. And I was like, well, I'm going to be on the podcast, so you don't have to do anything because I'm going <laughs> to be there. And he was like, are you sure? And I was like, yes. <laughs> All in 100%. And so even missing, I missed two short trek discoverages, and that killed me. And now I'm so happy to be back every week talking about Star Trek, having guests on. Um, we had Dave Gallanter on this week, and uh, he's my favorite, and he's super fun. Um, we have to have him on yeah. this show. We do, we do. He needs to be on this show. Okay, as we record this, in just a little over a week, I will be joining you there in London, as we previously referenced about Sherwood. Uh, what's the is Sherwood the the geekiest thing that you and I are going to do together when your mom and I are visiting you in London, or what else is going to happen there? That's a good question. <laughs> oh well, we're probably going to do a uh, Jack the Ripper walking tour. We're definitely doing that Jack the Ripper walking tour. So that's kind of geeky. It's funny you said it because I just saw a poster on the tube today for a Jack the Ripper opera called Women of Whitechapel. Oh. And I'm going to look into it, but I mean, <laughs> that's very high up on my list of weird juxtaposition things to experience <laughs> in my lifetime. Oh, we're definitely going to go get a sandwich at Speedy's Market, which is... Um, the shop that uh, Mrs. Hudson owns in Sherlock. Oh, there we go. Where they film, they film the outside, yeah. the exterior of 221B is an actual, like, townhouse thing. Yeah. You know, weird English house in, um, I think, like, North London, and they have, like, Speedy's Market is there. And a girl um, in my class one time told me she was, because um, we were walking, This is this is a different thing, um, one time I was walking past where they filmed the exterior shots for the Reichenbach Fall, mm-hmm. <laughs> which 
which was traumatizing. And I was with, I was there on like a field trip. So I was with like my classmates. And so one of my classmates told me that that's where it was. And I was like, Oh my God. And then she told me like, you have to go to Speedy's Market. They make the best sandwiches. Um, so we're definitely going to be eating one of those. I definitely it's- need to go buy 221B. Oh, definitely. And that, oh, that is not that far from um, Abbey Road Studios. Oh, there you go. I don't know what else. There's lots of weird, London is like very, because you'll just be walking and there'll be like a plaque that's like, in America, it would be like if you were just walking along a street and then there was a plaque that was like, Thomas Jefferson lived here. And it was just some random house where someone yeah. still lives for no, like, and you're just like, excuse, what? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's going to be very fun. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for episode 53, Return to Ragnarok, our lost episode that we recorded in the middle of the night right after seeing the premiere of Thor Ragnarok, but somehow never got around to finishing before now. Remember that Generations Geek is a part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from the trash heaps of Planet Sakaar. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.